excuse for abusers. These words echoed through the halls of the main building on Friday, where dozens of students sat outside the provost's office. Why? To protest two professors on the spring 2020 course schedule who have been found guilty of sexual misconduct. This is In the News. I'm Sarah Schleed, and I'm here with Editor-in-Chief Spencer Buckner. Hi, Sarah. News Editor Megan Menchaca. Hey, Sarah. And special guest, campus news reporter Lauren Groby. Hi, Sarah. Lauren, you were at the protest on Friday, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was. Can you describe what you saw? Um, yeah, I think the most interesting thing about the protest to me is when I got there, and then for um, the seven hours that it lasted, it went from 10 to 5. Uh, it was very civil, um, despite there was there was obviously a lot of shouting and chanting, um, even when there was only a small number of people there, you could hear it throughout the entire building. Um, people were uh, like tapping on the door. They were um, like thumping their hands on the walls or stomping their feet. Um, and uh, towards the end of the protest at about uh, four o'clock when they were starting to wrap things up, they uh, took out just like pieces of paper, like stuff out of their backpacks and wrote uh, messages to the provost um, sort of expressing their opinion um, with a lot of slogans like UT protects abusers or like this is why we need protection and like you should be telling us about these professors Um, and they taped all of the papers uh, to the walls of the uh, hallway like outside the provost's office and like just covered the walls and the windows Um, and there were parts definitely when it got a little bit more heated uh, though most of it, a lot of people who were there were just kind of like sitting, <laughs> chanting, and like on their laptops. It looked like a lot of people just like having a study session. Um, but right up towards the door, there were so many people crowded and waving signs like you couldn't even see inside the office at all. And so who was protesting and what exactly were they protesting against? Um, the protest uh, was all students. Um, the whole thing was organized by four individual students. Um, they made a Facebook event and then sent it out. and. It only happened through social media traction. Um, they, the protest organizers had a list of specific demands. They wanted, um, they wanted a report on uh, every professor who is found guilty of sexual misconduct that is sent out to students. Um, Meaning not just the two involved yes. in this particular incident. Yes, so just a, sort of like a general like warning, I suppose, like every semester, every year that like says like these professors are the ones who have found a like separate uh, sort of announcement. Um, and uh, obviously they wanted some kind of notification that um, Coleman Hutchinson and Sayota Sarkar had been found guilty of sexual misconduct or that they would be removed from the spring course schedule. Um, and yeah, I guess in a more general sense, the demand, like, the demand was for UT to stop allowing professors to teach who had been found guilty of misconduct by the own university standards. And the Texan has reported on um, Hutchinson's um, guilt before. Can you explain kind of the timeline of that a little bit, Spencer? Yeah. So um, last year, our editor-in-chief, Liza Anderson, um, last summer actually, wrote an editorial about how Hutchinson had been found in violation of sexual misconduct policy and was still on the course schedule. Um, they removed him from the course schedule for that fall, fall of 2018, but he's been on the course schedule um, not only this semester, but is now slated for the course schedule next semester. And um, the the entire reporting process, finding out which professors are actually in violation of these policies, 
um, is, is, is incredibly difficult to figure out. It's technically available through freedom of information requests, but even for our journalists, that's, that's information that's difficult to obtain. Um, and so while we know about Coleman Hutchison and Sahotra Sarkar, I mean, we, we don't know how many others there are. And I think that's one of the most infuriating things about the protest, not only that um, you know, these two known abusers are still on the course schedule, but that um, the university is not being more transparent about how many others there are um, that, you know, we only have two that we can protest. So we, we've been covering that as an editorial board um, for over, over a year now, and sadly, I, I, don't, I don't see our coverage of it stopping anytime soon. Well, so Lauren, how did the provost's office or the, um, the rest of the university respond to this protest? Um, uh, well, during the protest, um, a couple members of the provost's office dis- did come out uh, and directly address students. Um, uh, Joey Williams, the director of communications, and Rose Martinelli, the chief of staff for the provost's office, um, came out and sort of walked among the students and tried to speak with them for a period of time. I think this is about two hours into the protest. Um, uh, it didn't go very well from my perspective. There was, um, it was not a good place to hold a discourse. There was a lot of shouting involved, um, and not really a lot of communication. Uh, the timeline coordinator, uh, Adriana Alicia Rodriguez, she was also there. She sort of sat everyone down and, uh, took like questions and answers, um, and sort of just more of listening to the students, um. I mean, there aren't really a lot of answers I think you can provide in this situation, um, especially when most, it, there's not really a question being asked here. It's more of just a, a complaint. But she uh, sort of sat everyone down and listened to them for a little bit. Um, a university spokesperson did give me uh, a statement. They said that the university, I mean, would be looking into it, um, that uh, student safety is their top priority. Um, what what did the protest organizers say um, at the conclusion? Yeah, um, there a couple points out through the protest. Um, the four uh, individuals who organized it, they were sort of pulled aside by different university staff. Um, and uh, towards the end, um, between four and five o'clock, they uh, sort of rounded everyone up together and they said that the university would be sending out some kind of communication um, by Monday. So... Uh, what is today? So by Monday, October 28th, they said this communication would involve some kind of information about the sit-in, maybe like why it was held or an official university comment, but they said that they didn't know what kind of information uh, would be in it. And uh, student government also made a commitment to hold a town hall, I think at a tentative date for November 8th, um, I think pending the provost's approval, but that student government would be holding a town hall involving this issue. Um, And uh, there's... There's been no communication um, of that nature as of yet. <laughs> yeah, Spencer, I believe you have more context regarding that. Yeah, so um, though we're recording this on Monday, um, by the time the, the lovely public will hear this on Wednesday, um, we'll have published an editorial um, talking about how in, in lieu of an official communication from the university that was, that was promised to the organizers, um, they instead reached out on Monday um, to not only Lauren, who's here, hi Lauren, Hello. Um, but also <laughs> also to the organizers and said that they were instead going to be running an editorial on the Daily Texan. Um, I had never been contacted about this by UT Communications or by the, uh, by the provost's office, um, so that came as a shock to me. Um, and so our editorial, which will have run yesterday when you hear this, um, is talking about how... Um, 
the Texan is no place for an official university communication to go, um, especially when UT has the ability to send out um, this information to every student's email directly to their inbox. Um, we don't know why they would choose to go through the Texan instead, which has less coverage. Um, it, yeah, it, it seems it seems to me like they're dodging their responsibility to tell people the truth, that they don't want to own up to it, to every student's inbox, to, mi to minimize the damage that's coming out of this. And, and we talk about that in our editorial. Um, it's, it, it's, it's shady. It's, it's shady, and it seems shady to us. And, um, you know, we, we said that we will not run an editorial from them until they make an official university announcement themselves to every single student. We, we are more than happy to help disseminate information about which professors are abusers. We're more than happy to help give out information about you know UT changing their policy, but we can't be the only method. Because if we are the only method, that's a signal that the university is not willing to take its responsibility into its own hands. At least that's what it looks like to me. So the university found these professors guilty of misconduct, relocated them to different departments um they continue to teach then after students sat in front of their office said that student safety was their priority and now are choosing an untraditional route of communication with their student body yeah the university by all measurable means is better able to connect with the student body through their email list and through the information that they have than we are as the daily texan I could wake up tomorrow with a university notification in my email, just as all other 50,000 plus students could. Um, if the university really wanted to let as many people know about this as possible, they have the means to do it. I don't understand why they wanted to go through the Texan, and I don't understand why you know, we weren't talked to about this, um, the people that would be able to run it. Um, it's, it's, it's bizarre to me. It's absolutely bizarre. Right. Uh, well, we will perhaps uh, have updates on this story if it continues to unfold. Uh, for now, let's conclude the Riverside and Homeless Camping saga. At the time of this episode's release, it will have been almost two weeks since Austin City Council approved the redevelopment of apartment complexes in Riverside and revised its summer homelessness ordinances. Um, Megan, what happens next in Riverside? So the developers, uh, which are... Presidium Group and Nimes Real Estate said Ooh. construction uh, will begin in approximately 2023 20, and could take up to 20 years to complete. Um, the, they're going to be rezoning approximately 4,700 multifamily units, 600 hotel rooms, and more than 4 million square feet of office and retail space to replace the current apartment units that are there. They have promised to um, isolate a certain amount of apartment units for students who are still there so they can keep living there as the um, space transitions from the current kind of main primarily student housing area to a more upscale uh, area. Mm -hmm. And um, it's also worth uh, noting, I think, that uh, the evening of that vote, there were, um, I'd say, probably up to 40 people outside the uh, building protesting that vote uh community organizers and students uh making quite a ruckus they could be heard heard from inside and um yeah they did not uh get the demands that they were hoping for now the city council i mean some of them seems 
they, not a lot of them were incredibly enthusiastic about passing the bill. Um, many of them expressed the sentiment that the area was going to be gentrified um, eventually, and they wanted to move it along. They wanted to... Um, they wanted they, to gentrify it faster? They wanted to give it to this... They had talked to these people. They knew how it was going to work. They uh, Developers that they felt like were yeah. responsible. Yeah. Okay. Um, the new ordinance bans camping on sidewalk within 15 feet of business doors and by the Austin Resource Center, which is, um, I believe, a shelter for homelessness. Um, that's different than the original proposal by three different council members, uh, which would have also banned camping in a couple other places, high traffic areas, areas prone to wildfires, etc. Um, this was done as an update. They received a lot of pressure from the state, Governor Abbott, as well as um, city, the city community, the campus community, um, and they made some changes to the bill that was originally passed in June. They just, uh, as a recording, they began um, implementing those changes today. The Austin police were given some guidelines and they have begun enforcing or enforcing those new regulations uh, within Austin. And I believe I heard um, Mayor Adler describe this as um, kind of an opportunity to shift focus from um, allowing more spaces for homeless people and instead offering them like housing and more like resources. Uh, but are there any specifics on that front? Not in the, uh, I don't, I don't believe I, I'm not as familiar with the bill as the reporter, but I don't believe there were specifics in the bill. I'm not sure about that though. Yeah. Well, that's a bigger task of course. So we'll see, um, how that progresses over time. And for our last topic, I'd like to talk about one of the stories on Monday's front page. 40% of incoming freshmen in Texas are found to not be ready for college. Uh, Megan, what exactly does being college ready mean and where did this information come from? So college ready students are students who reach minimum scores on their ACT, SAT, AP tests or other college level equivalent tests. Um, the percentage that you just cited was presented uh, within a report at the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board, um, which showed not only that around 40% of students aren't college ready, but that around 15% um, of students entering uh, four-year universities and um, more than 60% of students entering two-year colleges are not college ready. And so why is this information significant? Um, students who score too low in a subject area, so let's say the math SAT section of the test, um, they have to take an extra year or more of development courses in that subject before they can enroll in a college level class. So for example, if you get like a maybe like a 400 or something on your SAT math section, you would have to take a developmental course before you could enroll in a math class at UT Austin. And so is the university going to um, like take any action based off of these facts? A lot of these are more of statewide statistics, not just related to UT. The responsibility is more on the statewide board. So the commissioner and at least one board member of the Higher Education Commission Board urged Texas institutions, which include UT, to improve college readiness by implementing what's called known as co-requisite courses, which combine the developmental education, which are these uh, remedial classes with the actual 
corresponding college class. Interesting. Well, uh, do you have anything else to add about that subject? One thing is that um, there are the, there's a wide discrepancy between the amount of students who are college ready at a four-year university compared to a two-year university because these four universities like UT Austin have not maybe not minimum SAT scores or ACT scores, but they generally accept students with higher ACT scores and those students score higher in those exams and so don't fall below the minimum required um, to be considered not college ready. However, a lot of two-year colleges accept the majority, if not all, the people who apply. And so a lot of the students entering those colleges are deemed not college ready. I see. Um, well, that's all for this episode. Thanks to Spencer, Megan, and Lauren for coming in. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so you can tune in in two weeks for another episode where we will talk more about what's in the news. Thank you.